0: a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot may be your new best friend but what won't change
1: needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com
2: it can all feel a bit out of our control right now amongst all the unpredictability and change How do we find some sense of agency in all of this, without being too harsh on ourselves? Dr. Susan David is a psychologist on a mission to make us more emotionally agile, more able to understand ourselves and recognise what we are thinking and feeling before we make choices. We chat about Susan's personal story and key ideas which over 10 million people around the world have checked out already.
1: Only dead people never get stressed. Only dead people never have their hearts broken. Only dead people never experience the disappointment that comes with failure. You know, and so the analog to this is, you know, I talk about this idea that we don't get to have a meaningful career or leave the world a better place or raise a family without stress and discomfort.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic, welcome. I've had a lot of people in the last few weeks tell me that this has just been a whole new lease of life for them, this kind of space that they've been forced to take, uh, this pause that they've been forced to uh, enact. And um, this, I guess, uh, giving, giving people oxygen to rethink, Um, what they're doing, how they're doing things. And someone emailed me yesterday about slowing down, like all these kinds of things. And I think that's a fascinating thing to come out of it. But in your work, talking about being kinder to ourselves and being more kind of self-compassionate, one of the things that comes to mind around that for me is a sense of like guilt. Like, hang on, how can I be having this amazingly transformative, positive experience when there's this crazy trauma going on out there in the world? What do you think about that?
1: Well, you know, the first thing that I would say is that I think we all of us very often go about life almost as if we're in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition, where we've got our goals and our businesses and all the things we're trying to do. And very often what that starts to do is it starts to take on almost like a kind of autopilot experience for us. We wake up in the morning, we get on with things, and it's actually exhausting, And so one of the things that society, particularly a very amped up uh, technological society, doesn't actually allow for is time for us to just be, to think, to reset. And so I think there is something powerful in recognizing that, yes, it, it is possible. And actually, it's very likely, and I think many of us are experiencing this idea of being able to breathe into the self. And for many people, it will be the first opportunity that they might have had even in decades to actually do that. And so that's a powerful thing. And it can definitely for people evoke a sense of, you know, what might be called comparative suffering Mm. or this idea that, you know, I'm suffering or I'm not suffering relative to someone else. And I feel like that is wrong you know how can i be enjoying this when so many people are losing their jobs and you know i think if we just look at the scientific literature on this we know that even when people have gone through very difficult experiences for themselves so there's a whole literature on post-traumatic growth Mm. the idea that someone can have gone through an illness a divorce a death of a loved one and Yes, you might not have wished that, or in fact, you didn't wish that on yourself, but it happened. And we know that people can come through that experience really having acknowledged real growth. And it's not growth that is through denial or pretending, Oh, you know, being a Pollyanna. We know that people do have a space of going through difficult experiences where they say that aspects of their life that previously seemed so important now seem unimportant where there's a reconnection with strengths or relationships where there's a focus on spirituality and so the way that I think about this is you know we aren't either or as people we are we are both you know we are capacious enough as human beings to both empathize with others and their suffering and to recognize that parts of this for us might be okay. And that's not something to necessarily, you know, beat yourself up about. I think that's a powerful place for us to be. And I think there is this idea that when we heal the self, we are more able to be with others. And, And what people who are saying that they're getting something positive from this are doing very often is actually healing the self.
2: Interesting, I think it's really, um, a lot of people have talked about the mental health issues which are either being covered up at the moment because we can't quite see them because they're in people's homes and people aren't going out and getting the help, uh, the increase in maybe you know negative thinking or even domestic abuse, all those kinds of things. And of course, that's going to be the case and we think that that will come out stronger at the other end too. But as you're saying, I love I really love the expression you know and the idea of post traumatic growth because we've been we've been indoctrinated in the idea of post traumatic stress yeah. and you know personally in my own life every time something really difficult or what i thought at the time was seriously bad uh, those those little punctuations in my life are always the times when real growth happens real inward reflection happens real kind of questioning And, you know, checking in on the compass, the internal compass of what are you here to do and what are you here to be? And I think it's almost like that there's a window here, although there's not that kind of crystallized pressure on certain people at the moment. But the opportunity that's opened up is this opportunity for growth while we're in this kind of, you know, bubble in a sense. Um, And so thinking about that as a positive outcome is very inspiring and encouraged to think about all the new kind of uh, expressions that people will, will have coming through the other side, right?
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, the same for me, you know, when I've experienced loss in my life, when when my dad died when I was very young, I speak about this in my TED talk, and I recall going through this experience where on the one hand, I started at the very beginning to almost deny, you know, I'm okay, I'll be okay, and push aside these difficult emotions but it was really when i showed up to myself and the difficulty that i was experiencing and i was able to be with it and reflect on it that i then started to generate that sense of growth and for me it was it was a feeling at core of resilience that i feel like i will have for the rest of my life and you know again these things i've been thinking a lot about this with this concept lately which is this concept of of bothness you know you can both find something traumatic and grow from it that there is a bothness the sun can be shining and people can be ill at the same time there is a bothness and i think the people who move through something difficult most effectively can open their arms and their hearts up to that idea of bothness
2: so fascinating because no matter what we do in the series it all come an essence of buddhism comes out everywhere so like you know the, the buddhist kind of concept of duality the yin and yang the balance of there is no right or wrong there is no good and bad is really coming out consistently in terms of people's wow this is a way you can view the world right you can always see the good you can always see the bad but um there is also a way to say you know there is nothing good or nothing bad it's just what you kind of describe or label it and they're always intertwined anyway you can't have something described as bad without being able to have something described as good so i love that um the bothness or the duality of the situation i think the more that we embrace that um on the personal level or on the global level or on the country level the more creativity and new ideas are going to flourish from from this experience you talked about your dad and your ted talk i wanted to go somewhere there because i was going to ask you about you mentioned that you broke you you made progress with that uh in your talk uh, at ted through journaling your school teacher gave you a book and said, not just you, but the whole class, and said, basically, pour out what it is you really believe in. I would love to um, hear from you about, you know, why is journaling, why does it work so well? What is the science behind this private conversation that you're having with your heart and a pen and some paper?
1: So it, again, connects with this idea of bothness. You know, we live in a society that promotes the idea that there are good and bad emotions, that there's positive and there's negative. And so, you know, people with cancer are automatically told to just be positive or individuals who are being marginalized and discriminated against to stop being so angry because there's this idea that like those emotions are somehow bad. And so what we do as a society is we very often push aside emotions that are uncomfortable. Uh, We see this, in its most uh, systematized form by putting elderly people away so we don't need to see them in a way that, you know, there's this medicalization of death that we see. And so what happens in society is when you have this idea that there's good and bad emotions, positive and negative, what it does is it leads people to be in internal struggle with their difficulties because you go through a death of a loved one, or a job loss, or a massive disappointment. And when we as human beings don't have practice in dealing with those realities and with the emotions that come with them, then we become in internal struggle with ourselves and we are much more likely to experience um, low levels of well being, high levels of depression and anxiety, and so on. So for me, my experience was my father dying, he died on a Friday. I went to school on the Monday because everyone said, you know, you've just got to keep your routine. You've just got to keep going. So I was 15 years old. I went to school on the Monday. And I, you know, started to really become the master on the face of it, of being okay. People would ask me how I was doing and I would be like, I'm okay. People would praise me for being strong. But in truth, we were struggling. I had lost my father. My mother was raising three children. We were financially ravaged. And so I started to, as so many young girls do, I started to binge and purge, to basically express or try to manage my emotions through not great ways of dealing with them. As again, we see people do day to day, You know, whether that's oversleeping or getting lost in Netflix or getting sucked into social media, this becomes a way of managing emotion. So, when this teacher said this to me, you know, what I started to do is I started to face into the reality of my experience and to write it down. And that was about the grief, the regret, the pain, all of that that had happened for me. And yes, I recognized after that period and many years later, because this shaped my entire career, this experience of writing, that processing our emotions in a particular way is incredibly helpful. So you ask, what is the science? You know, what is the science of it? So the science of it is that often when people are having difficult emotions, they do something which is called bottling their emotions. They push them aside. So an example of bottling is someone who's unhappy in their job and says, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. I should be grateful to have a job, so I'm just not gonna think about it. Okay, so bottling is when you push aside your difficult emotions, or you try to rationalize them, um, think that they're negative, so you avoid them. We have all these judgments about our difficult emotions. So that's often how people deal with it. The other way, which looks completely different, is when people brood on their emotions. Oh my goodness, this is terrible, I feel so bad, we get stuck in our emotions. Now, they look so different, but what we know is that both of these ways of being, both bottling and brooding, are actually associated with lower levels of well-being, because in both of those situations, what you aren't doing is one of the most fundamental things that human beings need to be able to do, and that is to integrate an experience that they have into their whole, so that there's not this little compartment of something that I don't go to, or when I go to, I get stuck in. And so that's really what what writing does. When we look at people who write, but it doesn't need to be through writing specifically. It could be a really good friend who understands you and helps you to get insight into your experience, or it could be a therapist or a coach. What we know is that when people start putting their difficult experiences in words, what they're doing is a few things. Firstly, they're not in denial; they are showing up to that difficult experience. Secondly, what they're starting to do is to generate that sense that we spoke about earlier of of post-traumatic growth. What is happening here? They're starting to get a greater sense of insight. You know, I didn't like what happened, but now I understand what it was that might have prompted my manager to act in that way or I didn't invite this into my life, but I recognize that I've grown from it. And so the really important part of growing through writing is that people start over time to really interestingly, they're not just using positive emotion words, they're also starting to use more difficult emotions in their writing, this idea again of integration, and they're starting to generate a sense of insight. And this is really important for people who are listening to this because it's when we think about, oh, this is a difficult experience, but I just don't want to think about it because I'm so lucky that at least I didn't get this virus. um, That's bottling. You know, if you're finding the experience difficult, you're finding the experience difficult. There's nothing wrong with finding an experience difficult. If you're brooding, you're getting so stuck in the emotion in your social media feed, you're feeling victimized, but it. again, it's not great psychologically. And so what we often needing to do is to really show up to our emotional experience, to label our emotions, to try to understand what's causing them. And this ultimately helps to generate a greater sense of insight and emotional growth. But also beyond that, we know that people who go through difficult experiences like a job loss, who write about the difficult experience are more likely to be rehired quicker than those that don't. So it actually starts activating your goals and your actions in a way that's really profound.
2: So it's a way of, I mean, it's, it's a way of both, uh, like you said, kind of in integrating it into yourself. So not ignoring yep. it and boxing it away and kind of packaging it away uh, in the corner, um, but also a way of observing observing and labeling and naming and kind of seeing okay these are the things that are happening and these are the feelings that I'm having and these are ideas that I might have in response to them and I think that's really uh, makes a lot of sense to me as to why uh, why journaling um, and, and things like that work
1: yeah because what you know I wrote this book emotional agility and what I describe in emotional agility is that, First, we show up to our difficult emotions, but the second thing we need to be able to do is to step out of our difficult emotions. And this is really about recognizing that our emotions are beautiful. You know, even if they feel tough, our emotions have evolved to help us to survive. You know, if you are in the midst of a virus under lockdown where millions of people are dying around you, and you feel fear or anxiety, that anxiety might be a normal response to a body that feels under threat. And so what is really powerful psychologically is when people are able to show up to the difficult emotions but also to notice those emotions for what they are. Our emotions are beautiful in that they contain data. And you know, what do I mean by this? If you feel bored in your job, that boredom might be a signpost that you value growth and learning and that you don't have enough of it. Or if you feel guilty as a parent, that guilt might be a signpost that you value presence and connectedness with your children. So our difficult emotions actually contain signposts to the things we care about. It's not just about putting up with them, it's about recognizing that they contain signposts. They are data but they are not directives. Just because I feel bored, doesn't mean I need to give up my job. Just because I feel guilty, doesn't mean I am a bad parent. And so what we need to be able to do is to show up to our emotions, what is this emotion telling me, but not letting the emotions call the shots. You know, we call the shots, our values, our intentions, who we wanna be. And how do we get to that point? We get to that point through labeling our emotions, to recognizing them for what they are, not getting stuck in them.
2: What does it mean to to build these muscles?
1: So emotional agility at its core is about the recognition that our inner world, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories actually drive everything. They drive how we love, how we come to our relationships, how we live, how we lead, whether we put up our hands for a new job, Our inner world drives everything. And so most of my work on emotional agility really asks the question, which is, what does it take in the way we deal with these things to be healthy and thriving human beings? And so, you know, what is emotional agility at core? You know, if I was really going to capsule a definition of it, it's about being able to be with our difficult thoughts, emotions, and experiences in ways that are compassionate Curious, so we can learn from them, but also courageous because we need to be able to be in a space where our emotions aren't calling the shots, where we are bringing other parts of ourselves, our values, and our intentions, and who we want to be to the situation. And why does this help us to be agile? You know, what is the agility part of emotional agility? It's that often, you know, we have, we have, we might have a a a story, a story that was written on our mental chalkboard in grade three, you know, or when we were five years old about whether we're good enough or not good enough, what kind of love we deserve. And that can lead us to get hooked in ways of being where we might struggle to get intimate with people or struggle to put our hand up for something that we really want to do because we've decided we aren't creative. So we can get hooked in stories. We can get hooked in thoughts, I'm being undermined in this meeting, so I'm just going to shut down. There's no point in contributing. We can also get hooked in our emotions. I'm sad. You know, there's no point in getting out of bed today. And we are agile when we are able to be with those thoughts, emotions, and stories, not push them aside, but still bring the best of ourselves forward. And the best of ourselves is who we want to be in the world, because every single person right now, regardless of where they are with the virus or the lockdown or their situation, all of us every day, life asks us, who do you want to be today? Every single day, life is saying, in amidst the imperfection and the chaos and the difficulty, who do you want to be? And emotional agility is about being able to have the psychological skills to bring that forward.
2: One of the things I am fascinated by as a general concept is anytime there's a gap or a space between things and, you know, it's like, I want to be this, this, uh, I want to have this job or I, I want to be happier. I want to be more peaceful. There's this, anytime there's a difference between what you desire or what you're aspiring to have and what you think your condition is now, there's this, there's this gap, right? Yeah. And you, um, have tied what you were just talking to uh, about with a kind of a concept of a space, right? Yes. Tell us yes. about that.
1: Well, I think there are different spaces. There's there's the space you know that we hear when Viktor Frankl's work is referred to, for example, the space between stimulus and response. This idea that Viktor Frankl talks about, which is you know between stimulus and response, there is a space. Just for and people space. Who don't know
2: Victor frankl's a Holocaust survivor who created a whole philosophy on how to live a meaningful and build a meaningful life.
1: Yeah. So Viktor Frankl, you know, survives the Nazi death camps and basically describes this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we are emotionally in agile, when we are hooked by our thought, our emotion and our story, there is no space between stimulus and response. He started in on the finances. I'm leaving the room. You know, there's, there's no space. We basically are just responding on autopilot. When we just go about our life day to day without thinking about, is this really the job that I want to be in? Is it really the life that I want to be living? The car that I want to be driving, we can also be on autopilot. So there's no space there. And emotional agility is about the skills that help us to create the space so that we can bring our values and our intentions forward effectively. Of course, there's another space. And the space is that when there are unknowns, that often fear falls in the gaps of our unknowns. You know, we, we know this again psychologically, that when people have an unknown, they are much more likely to say, I'd love to do the thing. But what if such and such happens? Fear fills in the gaps. And I think this is again why this recognition that fear has a function that is a beautiful function that's trying to protect you, but that fear doesn't need to call the shots in your life, that you get to call the shots. You own your emotions, they don't own you. So we need to be able to be with our emotions so that we own them and that we are the people moving forward we
2: make the choice we can choose knowing what we know and, and, and the space that is before us yeah i want to i wanted to um uh go in a different direction uh, you you have a phrase which i don't really like the tyranny of positivity okay. The yes. tyranny of positivity so for me Let's play back the tape what we were just talking about. I see something yeah. that's difficult, it's a challenge, to kind of look at them, identify them. And then I, my choice, more often than not, I think, is to choose to be positive and move forward positively. Yeah. But I'm not sure if you're saying that's bad or you're saying that we're too um as a as a society, too biased towards just, hey. Get, you know, what are you moping around about? Just be positive. Like, what is it that you mean by the tyranny of positivity?
1: Yeah. So, the tyranny of positivity, what I mean by this is the latter. So, it's this idea that if you are looking at your situation and you're saying, gee, I feel bad about this, but here's some opportunities. This is how I'm going to galvanize myself to come forward towards these. And you're doing it from the place of your values and a sense of connectedness and authenticity, then You're not in a tyranny of positivity. You're in a space of psychological wellness and wholeness where you've been able to look at the situation and choose a path forward. That's very different from feeling, you know, worried about something and just saying, I'm just not going to worry about it. And actually, it might have been something that you should have worried about, because if you'd have worried about it, you would have been able to contingency plan and find an effective pathway. And so the tyranny of positivity is basically a comment on um, social structures and very often family structures, structures that connote this idea that there are good and bad emotions. And that what this often does is it leaves people feeling that they have to constantly put on a brave, happy face. And the problem with this is that it's denial. You know, it is fundamentally denial. Uh, What you're doing is you are not actually dealing with the reality of the world as it is. Instead, you're trying to pretend that the world is something different. What helps human beings to be happy is not chasing happiness. We know that people who set happiness as a goal actually tend to become more unhappy over time because happiness is not something that you have some kind of goal for. It's something that you experience um, by engaging in life that feels values congruent and meaningful. So people who have happiness as a goal tend not to be happy. And also people who deny difficult emotions or have this narrative that sadness is a you know is a bad emotion and I'm just not gonna go there. They also tend to get less happy over time because they again are pushing out the reality of human experience and they become unidimensional in it. And then something happens. They lose their jobs or there's a virus or there's and they haven't actually developed the skills to deal with the world as it is and therefore they become less happy over time. Right. So so it's it's more about this um forced narrative that suggests that if you feel difficult feelings, that you're less than. You're not less right. than. Yeah. You're so human.
2: That's, um, there's some really great questions coming in, and I think uh, anybody who's got any, please type type them in the Q&A, and we'll get to them pretty soon. I think before we do, just one last thing, just just related to what you were talking about, is you really have a talent for coming up with bizarre phrases so dead people's goals are basically what you were just talking about right which is people don't want to feel these well you, you tell the story obviously it's your so, story.
1: so yeah so so actually the idea of dead people's goals comes from you know has its roots in education and psychology and it's this idea that people will often say things like i don't want to be stressed or i don't want to be disappointed i just wish this difficult feeling would go away and the idea is that, you know, these are dead people's goals because, you know, only dead people never get stressed. Only dead people never have their hearts broken. Only dead people, dead people never experience the disappointment that comes with failure. You know, and so the analog to this is, you know, I talk about this idea that we don't get to have a meaningful career or leave the world a better place or raise a family with out stress and discomfort you know discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life and you know even the most difficult experience which is the experience of of grief um saying i never want to experience grief in my life is also saying that i turn my back on love because it's only when you've loved that you will ever have grief. And so it's not its not this, you know, idea that, um, you know, we, we should all, you know, love being down in the dumps. It's not that at all. It's more this idea that I, I just, as human beings, we are capacious enough to have a full range of experience. And this idea that we should only have one kind of emotion and not another, um, that if we have those difficult emotions that we need to get rid of them is just not congruent with our contract with life you know that our contract with life is that discomfort and loss are sown into it that is the contract we
2: have so great thank you so much we've got some great questions shall we come in yes let's i'm excited so uh i think a couple of them around Love these ideas, but how can we practically develop the muscles, emotional agility? Uh, so what are some practical ways for us to incorporate that? And also, um, a related question, practical ways not to get stuck mentally, like you were saying, like sometimes you get stuck. Uh,
0: so, get stuck.
1: Okay, so I, th- I love these questions. So firstly, um, how do we start developing emotional agility? One of the first things that I would say is that very often, again, because of these narratives that we were talking about earlier and also narratives that we have often when we're growing up, you know, someone might say a parent with very good intentions, "Oh, you sad. you know, don't be sad. I'll make it better. We do this with very good intentions, but what it can often do is it can often take away our opportunity to develop these skills. And so the very first um, part of emotional agility is if you hear yourself judging yourself for having any kind of emotion, if you hear yourself saying, I feel sad, but I shouldn't feel sad, you know, or what you're doing is you're starting to get into a tug of war with yourself about what you feel. So the first part of emotional agility is really just gentle acceptance. And what do I mean by gentle acceptance? Imagine you go outside because you live in Wellington and you go outside and it's windy and it's rainy. Um, I know you don't, but when, when I live there and it's, it's raining. So gentle acceptance is you go outside and you say, gee, it's raining. Okay. The opposite of gentle acceptance is when you go outside and you say, it's raining and I wish it weren't raining. Why is it raining today? It shouldn't rain every single, why does it rain every time I want to go, So, you can see the difference here. Now, gentle acceptance with the situation is I don't love what's going on here with this virus. I don't love what's happening, but it is what it is. Gentle acceptance with ourselves I feel sad, I feel angry, or frustrated. This is how I feel. So, the first part of emotional agility is moving beyond this internal tug of war with what you should or shouldn't feel. Second part of uh, this, and there are many practical strategies that I that I can talk to, but a second part is compassion. You know, compassion is not something we often talk about in society, in businesses, because often it does feel like we're in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where we keep needing to push ourselves. And so so self-compassion can often feel like it's about being weak or lazy. But the opposite is true. What we know from the research is that people who are kind to themselves, what they're doing is they're creating a space for themselves where even if they try and they fail, they know that they've still got a loved one to come home to and it's them. And so those people actually tend to try more, be more honest, you know, take more risks. So just be kind to yourself. You know, you're doing the best you can. With who you are, with what you've got, and with your resources that you have in life, and this, you know, I actually just recently recorded a podcast on this. It's this idea that, you know, if you had a child who came running to you and said, "I stuffed up," you wouldn't say to the child, "You silly! Why did you do that?" You, you would just take the child in your arms and give the child love. So why should we treat ourselves any different? So those are two, but let me give you some two other very practical strategies. Um, So we're feeling a tough emotion and often we say things like, I am. I am sad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. When you say I am, it makes it sound as if you, all of you, 100% of you, is the emotion. In other words, you're no longer someone who feels an emotion, you have become the emotion. And when you say I am, you can see that there's no space there between stimulus and response. You are basically being defined by your emotion. So when you are struggling with something, see if you can do something which is very subtle but very powerful. Just label your thought, your emotion, your story for what it is. It's a thought, an emotion, a story. It's not a fact. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing the urge to shut this person down in the meeting. I'm noticing that this is my I'm not good enough story. And you can even give that story a name. What you're doing here is you're starting to do what we spoke about earlier, which is Creative creating space. linguistic space. Yeah. That linguistic space. Then a very last one, and, and uh, then you know, let's take another question, is... Another really powerful psychological tool to start creating space is to say to yourself, what is it that I'm really feeling? Because often we use very big labels to describe what we're feeling. I'm stressed. Okay, I'm stressed is the most common one I hear. But there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment, stress and exhaustion, stress and You know, I'm in the wrong job or the wrong career. What we know is when
0: Tired?
1: Or tired. So what we know is when people label their emotion more accurately, they go from this big diffuse emotion into what is this thing exactly that I'm feeling? It's incredibly powerful. When you say this thing I'm calling stress, actually I'm tired automatically it starts helping you to say, oh, I need to go to bed earlier. I need to take a long bath. What it starts to do is it starts to activate what's called the readiness potential in your brain and helps you to understand what the cause of the emotion is and what you need to start doing about it. So, you know, if people are experiencing tough emotions right now, try to move beyond a big label that you might have and be much more differentiated and nuanced. And you'll see that what that starts to do is to move you forward in the direction of what's important to you.
2: Great. So a couple of questions around um, parents Parents saying uh, they're struggling, I, I guess, with language, I guess kind of what you were talking about, but with their children. So uh, really, the, one of the questions is, have you got any advice on how to promote emotional agility with a young family? Um, and, and the kids, I think, is the question.
1: Yes. yes, I've actually got a chapter in my book on exactly this, because it's critical. I've got two young children, and um, so a couple of things. The first thing I'll say is any, any kind of parenting advice I ever give is really done with the recognition that it's tough. <laughs> and that we are all doing the best we can all of us so let's play this through imagine your child comes home from school and says mommy no one would play with me today okay often with really good intentions what we want to do is jump in and say oh don't worry i'll play with you let's go back cupcakes let's go you know we try to make that feeling okay and we do it with really good intentions But what we know is that the way children get good with emotions is by learning a few things about emotions as they are little, which is, number one, every emotion is transient, okay? And they only learn that when they have been allowed to feel sad, and then they recognize that 10 minutes later, the sadness has actually by itself passed, So when we rush in and try to make our children's emotions better, what we're often doing is we're taking away the opportunity to help them to practice their emotions. So that's one. The other thing that can often happen is we can start generating these display rules. Display rules are these unspoken rules about what emotions are okay or not okay in our house. You know, if you feel angry, go to your room and come out when you've got a smile on your face. What that says is anger's not okay. And a really important distinction with children is you can feel anything you want to feel. There is no good and bad emotion. But you have to choose how to respond effectively. In my TED Talk, I give this example, which is I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister and I can see it and I can love him and I can say I can see you frustrated. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing his idea that he gets to give away to the first stranger that he sees in a shopping mall. Okay. So what we're helping our children to do is to say, all of your emotions are okay, but you needing to make choices. So showing up to your children's emotions and letting them know that all emotions are okay is critical. Second, help your children to label their emotions we know that children as young as two, three, four years old, who start developing this skill, again, of emotion granularity. Am I sad? Am I angry? What's actually going on for me? Those children actually, over the course of their lives, do better psychologically. Because you've got a 16-year-old now. It's really important that that 16-year-old is able to recognize that, when a friend of theirs says, ah, I've got this great idea, let's go let the air out of the principal's car tires, you need your child to be able to recognize that on the one hand, they feel really excited, but on the other hand, they're feeling a sense of disquiet and to be able to connect in with that. And then the third, and then again, we will go with another question, is our emotions contain data about the things that we care about, okay? same is true of children so when your child comes home and says mommy jack didn't invite me to his birthday party and i'm not going to invite him there's no space between stimulus and response we can help the child by showing up to their emotions we can help them by labeling emotions but we can also start doing something even more magnificent with them which is it sounds like friendship is important to you okay because The child's emotion is that they feel rejected here by a friend. And actually, what is that signaling? It's signaling that friendship is important. So you can start having conversations with your child about what does being a good friend look like? What kind of friend do you want to be? Um, How do you want to bring yourself to being a friend to people at school? And what you're starting to do here is you're starting to not just show up not just step out of emotions; you're actually starting to do something far more important. When we think about emotional agility, which is you helping your child to develop their sense of values and their moral compass, and you know, again, this is what is inserted between stimulus and response: yeah. this moral compass. One
2: question, which is a little bit related to that, I guess, as a parent you have to also be much more conscious of the words you use when you're labeling how you're feeling or things. Cause if you're flinging them around the house with poor accuracy, then your children are going to obviously take those on as well. And a question here, which is kind of related to that last bit about the kid coming home, but it's actually a question about an adult, which is around, okay, my partner is not really, how can I support my partner in labeling their emotions accurately? Because I get the sense from the question from Lottie that, her partner will be is using words that are basically refusing a label that's probably more appropriate of the reality of the situation.
1: So this is really interesting. So there definitely are you know there there definitely are differences in people in terms of uh, childhoods and backgrounds. Then in terms of how used to labeling emotions people are. Um, there's this beautiful phrase in psychology called alexithymia. And Alexithymia literally means no language for emotions. And I remember many years ago working with someone who, you know, had gone through the most terrible traumatic experience and, you know, would just constantly say when you said to him, like, you know, how's your day been? How's your week been? He would say, just a bit of bother, just a bit of bother. You know, everything was because he struggled to label his emotions. So the first thing that's really important is, you know, And I think this is especially critical during this COVID-19 phase is is often what happens is there is this emotional mismatch between partners where one person feels completely calm, another person feels completely anxious. One person needs a lot of space, the other person doesn't, you know, wants to be involved all the time. And I think there's a really important role in firstly recognizing that we don't need to fix fix the situation for the other person. But just even reflecting on people's emotions can be really helpful. So I've been in situations sometimes when I've been struggling to make sense of something, and a good friend might say, oh, it seems like what you feel there is, and they'll use a label, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, yes, of course, that's right. Like, that's the label for it. And so, you know, you, you may not be able to, you know, teach the person to become, you know, absolutely brilliant at labelling their emotions, but even sometimes the reflection back of, it sounds like you're feeling de- this, does, does that feel right to you? Right. Can be profoundly insightful for people and can in a partnership really help people to feel seen and understood and heard and does the same kind of job as if you were having a conversation with, you know, a really good friend or a therapist, um, it's, it's, it's very powerful.
2: So kind of like suggesting or mirroring something back that may slightly improve the accuracy.
1: Yeah. And and I think we all do this for each other. You know, often when when one of us is stuck in something, someone else might say, you know, it's like, Perspective taking is really is really important. Um, another thing that I would suggest is is sometimes I've I've done this with with clients, which is when people really struggle with it, I just say, "What are two other options?" You saying your team is you know really angry with you. What are two other options? You know, one of the options might be that they feel like anxious about the situation, and it's not angry at all another option might be that they you know are feeling unseen so just thinking like what are two other options can be a very structured lettering way of getting to that same place
2: thank you so much i think you've probably got to get back to your family maybe we can end with one question which i think is a beautiful question from blair um what what do you think we can hold on to from this experience? Like, what are some of the most, I guess, positive things that we, you would like us to sustain going forward as we get out of this?
1: Oh, what a beautiful question. Well, it connects a little bit with what I spoke about earlier, which is that life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility now that might not sound like a very inspiring thing it might sound like a scary thing to hold on to but if we if we think about so many of the problems that exist in the world it's because or not only because I don't want to oversimplify but it's because of othering you know there's this there's this stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable or one feel uncomfortable so we don't want to see it we don't want to to go to that place there's this other ring and I think that you know the example that I gave earlier it's it it when we're in a society that feels for instance uncomfortable with death what does that lead to it leads to or, or definitely is um perpetuating of a medical system where um people have poor deaths you know where where as a society we we medicalize the entire experience for people and often push people aside and I I just think that if all of us as human beings were able to recognize that there is this bothness you know there is the sun shining and people dying there is the beautiful reconnection with the self and the struggle I think it's in that appreciation of bothness the fragility and beauty of life that's really where our resilience is born, but also where our capacity to see the other is born. And I'll just end by saying, you know, again, in my TED Talk, I use this word, and I just love it, which is that in South Africa, where I grew up, there's this beautiful greeting, which is Sawobona. Sawobona is a Zulu greeting, and you hear it on the street every day. "Sabona, yabo, And AndSabona, literally translated, means "I see you." And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And I often think of this idea that we need to suburbona ourselves, okay? To not push aside our difficulty to be kind and compassionate to ourselves. And that it's in being able to see ourselves that we are also then more able to see the other two. And I think that suburbona is really born of... The, the holding of the, the bothness, the self and the other, the good and the bad, the beauty and the fragility in the recognition that human beings are capacious and, and wonderful and, and and multidimensional.
2: Beautiful answer, thank you so much, Susan. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. And we look forward to you returning to New Zealand and these parts of the world when the world opens up it would be so nice to have you back for a conversation I would love to I'd love to Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations Together at Home If you like this episode please share it and if you haven't yet go on and push subscribe See you next time